All right. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for coming. Uh, we're about to get started with the speaking portion of the evening. My name is Kathy Reisenwitz. I am co-lead of the Huntsville New Liberals, who's hosting this event. Um, and I just wanted to take a second to, again, thank you for coming. Let you know, um, if you go to HuntsvilleNewLiberals.com, you can find out about the next event. We have monthly happy hours. Sign up for the mailing list, we'll let you know. Um, and I wanted to start by uh, quoting Homelessness is a Housing Problem, a book I'm reading because I am cool. Uh, if we understand homelessness as a housing problem, we can also understand it as solvable. We already have the evidence that it is. The resources exist to end homelessness. The constraints are political will and commitment. To end homelessness, we're going to need to get involved at the policy level. And to get involved at the policy level, we're going to have to understand what the constraints are and interface with the people who are making policy. And so I just want to genuinely thank Dennis Madsen, Director of Planning for the City of Huntsville, for coming out explaining to us what's happening at the city, um, the constraints they're under, and how we can all work together to address the problems that the city faces, like homelessness, like a lack of transit, um, and other challenges. So thank you so much, Dennis, for being with us. Y'all prefer mic or, or no mic? You want the mic for the recording? Well, then, okay, I just, wow, that's weird. I'm going to have to sort of keep it hovering out here. Um, uh, hey, y'all, my name is Dennis Madsen. I'm the, it's a mouthful, I'm the manager of urban and long-range planning for the city of Huntsville, um, which is a, kind of a long and, and wordy way of saying that my job is to figure out we're going to face in a year, in five years, 10 years, 20 years, and get in front of those. Uh, I was going to talk a little bit about kind of how we got where we are, provide some sort of backdrop on planning. Um, some of you, this is going to be redundant because I actually know we have some planners in the audience. So Phoenix, you just get on your phone and ignore me for a while while I talk about this. So um, so uh, if you step back a little bit to what, you know, a, a big kind of uh, demising line in urban growth in America, that was post the Second World War, right? Everything that we had had known about cities, everything that we had known about transportation, we kind of blew up, right? Everybody's coming back. We were remaking our communities. Um, people were getting out of the cities. Uh, we were building cars. Uh, we were building the roads to support cars. We were building uh, new subdivisions and new communities outside of the urban core. We were sort of we were discovering kind of new transportation, right? And unfortunately, what happened is we forgot a lot of the sort of sustainable lessons of communities that had been in operation around cities for thousands of years. That at the end of the day, a city is about an individual, right? It's about the human scale. It doesn't matter if you get around on a cart or a horse or a car or a train or you're walking or a bike or anything. At the end of the day, communities are about people and they're about human scale. And post-war, we kind of forgot that, right? We blew it up and we said, you know what? You can drive everywhere. Right? You could drive to your mailbox if you want to. We're, gonna, we're not going to build sidewalks and we're not going to build bikeways. We're not going to build anything because you should just be able to drive everywhere. And what took us a little while to rediscover is that that's not sustainable. And I'm not talking about that purely from a green standpoint, though it is 
very, very hard on the environment. Um, also from just a financial standpoint, from a city standpoint, paying not only to build roads, but to maintain roads and an increasingly broad road network is an incredible cost burden. All right. So cities like Huntsville that really grew rapidly post-war are kind of coming to grips with, all right, how do we continue to support automotive-oriented growth? Because there's a large camp that is sort of all cars bad. I'm not in that camp, I think. Car traffic does serve a lot of purpose. It opens up a lot of commerce, but you can't put all your eggs in one transportation basket, right? You can't just be about the car. You have to be about pedestrian activity and bike activity and transit, which we're going to talk a little bit about. Um, so cities like Huntsville that really exploded in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s are kind of coming back around and saying, all right, how do we change back to a sustainable model? And that sustainable model is really about kind of the interplay of land use, right? How are you using your land, right? What What's going in different places? And transportation and infrastructure, how are all those things connected? So we talk about land use, cities used to be about putting as many different things in one place as you possibly could, right? So that you could walk to everything, so that everything was sort of within reach. Well, when we adopted the car-oriented culture, we blew all that up, right? Everything was going to be, all your office is going to be over here, all your work is going to be over here, all your living is going to be over here, and all your, your, your shopping is going to be over here. And basically, you have to drive among all those things, which put a real premium on folks who either couldn't drive or couldn't afford to maintain cars, it made those cities that much more difficult to live in. So you see a very concerted effort by cities like Huntsville um, in, in remixing those uses and creating, I know it sounds like a cliche, you hear live, work, play all the time. I know it's like a brand on every fancy new district in every city that you go to, but it has a lot of history behind it because that's the way cities have worked historically, that within a human scale, you could live, you could work, you could play. And cities are starting to kind of rediscover how you build communities like that. Um, the other big part is transportation as well, right? And we do spend a lot of money on making sure our car networks work, um, but we know we have to diversify how we move people around. That is, that is, that's not just a, a feel-good thing. That's not just an equity thing. That is from pure um, practicality. You cannot move people around a region just in cars. Um, my wife and I, who um, I don't know why she consented to join me this evening, but um, she's actually, if she's got the earbud in, it's because Trump's being arraigned, I think, this evening. And she's, she's like, no, no, she's listening intently. No, I'm not. There goes the earbud. Um um, so we lived in Atlanta 20 years before we came here. And I don't know if any of y'all have been in Atlanta recently. Um, Atlanta was one of those places that believed you could pave your way out of congestion, right? You know, if there's traffic, all you got to do is widen, right? All you got to do is add another, add another overpass. If you've driven through there, you know how that experiment is working, right? You know, it, that if you put, again, all your eggs in that transportation basket, it is a recipe really for strangling on your own growth. So from a practical standpoint, if we're going to grow in a sustainable way, we know we have to diversify our land use and we know we have to diversify our transportation options. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the things we're doing on both of those ends. One is, you know, if you see developments around town, things like mid-city, right? Um, I know it, it comes across as just a giant adult playground, right? It's got, a, you know, high point climbing and top golf and the amphitheater and all those other things. But that is an intentional move to say, 
let's start mixing our residential and our office and our activity and our employment in an area that's navigable, right? Yes, yeah, so I, I would clap for that all day long, right? Um, but it's not just in places like that. We see that happening really throughout the city. We're actively encouraging those sorts of mixed-use developments because they take a burden off of car ownership and they take a burden off of cars as the sole transportation option within the community. Um, so that is a very real piece that we're trying to that we're trying to promote actively through our policy, um, as well as diversifying our transportation. I think you guys are getting your next talk is going to be um, I call him Pastor John Kavach. Um, he is not a pastor, but he talks like one when he's talking about greenways. Um, you know, he'll grab the pulpit and he'll shake it. Um, but he's a, he's a great guy. He is very passionate about regional greenway development. And this is not simply just sort of a fun thing to bike on the weekend. This is a very real transportation option, right? This is the idea of giving folks other options for how they navigate their community. And the SRT is really looking at a, a regional greenway connection. Um, SRT Singing River Trail. Thank you, dear. Um, the Singing River Trail um, is kind of our answer to, if you're familiar with the Silver Comet or the Natchez Trace or the Chief Ladaga, you know, those regional greenway networks. Um, it is not just about recreation, though that's a big piece of it. Um, if you listen to him talk, and I don't want to, you know, spoil any of uh, what he's talking about, a big chunk of that is also about connecting the urban and rural divide, linking residential to employment. Um, you have a lot of smaller communities that struggle to attract workers, that struggle to attract investment in their neighborhoods because it is too difficult to get workers from one point to another. That's too far out for them, right? If you can provide meaningful transportation links to these other communities, you make these smaller communities more viable. You give them economic tools to thrive, not just your sort of big urban core. Um, a big chunk of that as well in terms of navigating the community is another part that we probably don't hear a lot about, um, and that is enhancing transit. Um, how many of y'all, I'm going to I'm going to guess the over-under here is one. How many of y'all rode transit here tonight? Right? No way. That, don't feel bad. Um, in almost every one of these meetings, I, I don't know that I've seen a hand up in like a year. Um, however, I think as many of y'all probably appreciate, that does not mean there is not substantial demand for transit in this community. In fact, we know because we, we update our transit network, we, we, we do five-year plans, but we've gotten so much good feedback from them that we're doing them every like three and a half years. Um, every time we do a route update, ridership increases. And in fact, post and during COVID, most transit networks in America really suffered a huge drop in ridership. Obviously, if you, you know, there was kind of forced separation on a lot of, uh, of transit units, you couldn't carry as many folks. We didn't have the extra units to increase headways. So you had, you had a huge drop off in ridership. Huntsville was one of the fastest to bounce back to hundred percent ridership. Um, it was it was incredible uh, how many people got back on transit as soon as they could. Now, that's kind of a feel-good story, but it also points out the fact that there is a tremendous amount of demand for transit out there, right? That people don't do this because they're like, yay, shuttles, right? You know, I, I just love to ride with other people. That's not why they're on it. They're not because they need this. They're on it because they rely on this to get to shopping, to get home, to get to work, to pick up their kids at school. This stuff is important to them. And there are a lot of folks out there who rely on transit for their day-to-day. -day. So we've been very aggressive about expanding our transit options, um, doing more frequent updates. And one thing that I'm excited about is the MPO, which my TARCOG friends are familiar with, is the Metropolitan Planning Organization, right? That is a, a state-recognized body that takes 
to really get in the weeds. It takes federal and state transportation money and allocates it to certain projects. Now, most of those projects are still road projects in a region like ours, right? They're still new overpasses, new routes, but we just got an FTA approval to do what we call, what we're calling a, right, a BRT study for University Drive. For those who aren't transit wonks, BRT is bus rapid transit. Now, most of y'all stop less, stop listening at bus, right? You know, you're listening, no, I want trains, right? BRT is, operates more like light rail, right? It doesn't stop every 500 feet at a little shelter. It usually stops at an elevated station area. It has zero level entry, so the doors open, folks can roll off, roll up. It's particularly good for your mobility impaired folks, right? You're not having to, to have someone get off a shuttle, the driver get off. If you've ever seen someone in a, in a wheelchair have to get on one of our shuttles locally, drivers got to get off, they get out, they strap them in, they load them up, they put them on. Now, everyone who else who's on there is kind of a little angry at that person who this is really the only way that they know how to get around, right? This is their only option. It really slows things down. Having a route like this, it makes it much more accessible for people who are mobility challenged, but you're also talking much more frequent ridership. You're talking much higher capacity. And we finally got a project on the federal dashboard to get federal funding to help us do our first BRT corridor. And that is we're looking at University Drive, basically from downtown, the first phase would be downtown to Providence, but eventually going downtown to the Balch Road area, the, the Madison Hospital. So we're calling it kind of the health corridor, right? Huntsville Hospital to Madison Hospital. Got a ton of employment along there. We've got a ton of residential along there, a ton of potential ridership. Um, the feds are really excited because they want to do a project in Alabama. Yeah. It was, n I don't think we ever really talked about Memorial as that. Um, it, great. I would love to do Memorial as well. Um, when the feds look at it, a lot of times they're looking for uh, existing ridership and potential ridership growth. And university, university has a current city of Huntsville transit line transit route on it that is hands down the hard, the highest ridership already. So that was one that we said, if we could beef up this line and do a BRT route on this, this is most likely going to be the best route to score with the feds and get federal matching money. Um, but it's a good question because one of the things we're looking at is, um, is the idea of that as a pilot, right? We do this right. Well, okay, now we look at another route and now we look at another route and now we look at another route. Um, there are other cities that have done this very effectively in the past. Jacksonville, Florida has built out a very high functioning transit network, basically one BRT route at a time. Um, BRT is a whole lot less expensive than rail, a whole lot less, um, uh, less costly to implement than rail, a whole lot more flexible for a city, our size, it's a little more sprawling. It's a great, you know, what I call sort of gateway transit, right? You know, it's a, a good sort of first introduction introduction into to kind of higher capacity transit. Um, the reason that we also talk a lot about transit is um, Kathy and I have been talking a lot about housing locally and how we maintain affordability within the region. Right? Housing isn't just about housing itself. It's oftentimes about a lot of the other expenses that go into it. And transportation is one of those things. So we talk when we talk about transit, I'll use that as a segue to move into housing because housing is a really, really complex ecosystem. Um, it's one of those things that I think most folks, if you're looking at our numbers, anecdotally, affordability is an issue in Huntsville. We know that. Now, if you benchmark us against a lot of our peer cities, we are, relatively speaking, affordable. 
Now, there, there's a guy, a, a guy I really like who works for um, Habitat for, for Humanity. And every time I say that and he's in the audience, he picks up something small and threatens to hit me with it. Um, because for, for him, you know, his, his constituents have been in crisis for decades, right? And he doesn't want anyone saying it's fine. We don't suggest that it's fine either. We recognize that affordability is really a component of Huntsville's competitiveness. And even as we say kind of troubling indicators, we know we've got to get in front of them. So all that into how do we address affordability on a citywide scale? And you know, if we're going to quote some books, another one that, that Kathy and I mentioned the first time we met, um, a favorite of mine is by a guy named Shane Phillips, and it's called The Affordable City. All right. If you're looking for another, you know, like y'all need something else to read, right? Um, but it's really good. This guy has worked in housing really up and down the West Coast, which is, is sort of a lab for places that struggle to put affordability on the ground through a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, and major metros like San Francisco, which are very progressive, also tend to be hardcore NIMBY cities, right? It's hard to get density and it's hard to get creative housing solutions, even in a progressive community like that. And those are that raw supply is very, very important to answering affordability. Um, so when we look at how do we address affordability within the community, the big first step is supply. Supply, 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 supply. Just put more on the ground. Now, we get a lot of pushback. People who are driving around going, I see all these apartment complexes popping up. You know, you need to do something about this. We're growing too much. We're growing too fast. I would say, actually, if you look at our numbers over the last several decades, we have underbuilt apartments for years. There were some years where we put no apartment units on the ground at all. All right. In a city growing like ours, that is very difficult to accommodate that growth and maintain level of affordability if you're not just putting raw numbers on the ground. So one is raw supply. The second is diversifying supply. So let's go back to the first part of my talk when I was talking about pre-war zoning and pre-war development versus post-war development. Pre-war you saw, and if you, you'll see it a lot if you drive around the city, an incredibly rich mix of housing types within this community. Like even if you go to some of our oldest neighborhoods and you walk them and you look around with an eye on housing types, you'll notice there's far more diversity in some of our older neighborhoods in housing types than you see in some of our newer subdivisions, right? Walk around Twickenham or Old Town and you'll see these enormous, you know, million dollar homes and they'll be right next to a quadruplex, right? Or there'll be a series of townhomes right around the corner or there'll be this little sort of bunker row of apartments right around the corner. That was a very intentional and real and historically prevalent mix in cities all around the country that kind of got zoned out of existence post-war, right? You know, one of the sort of underlying notions was we were we were really trying to separate the uses, and we weren't just trying to separate the uses, we were trying to separate folks within the uses, right? So we zoned a lot of those types of uses out. If we can reintroduce more variety in housing, one of the things that allows you to do is right-size your housing, right? Um, for a long time, we were making, you know, four-story walk-up apartments. Hey, David, how are you? Um, speaking of mapping, um, four-story walk-up apartments or single-family detached. And if, if one of those two didn't fit you, you were out of luck. You were either in something too small or you were in something that was more than you can afford, right? So adding a little bit more diversity in terms of our housing is incredibly important because it allows you to say, I don't need 2,500 square feet. I need 1,500 square feet. I don't want two stories. I want a single story. 
I need this many bedrooms because I've got this many kids and I'm a single parent. I need to be this close to the school because both my kids go to this school. I need to be this close to transit because I rely on transit to get my kids around. That's the sort of thing that can build in affordability. Um, another big piece is recognizing too that even if you find you know developers with the heart of gold and even if you increase your supply and even if you increase your diversity, the current nature of the economy is that it is really hard to build market rate affordability for folks making 60% or 30% of AMI. So that's where at a certain point you'd say, we really need to help the market diversify and add supply, but we're also going to start need to figure out creative ways to subsidize. Just sorry. Um, yeah, I'm throwing out, uh, throwing out, um, all sorts of acronyms, AMI area median income. So when we're benchmarking affordability, we're talking about where in relationship to your median income that, that you're looking at. Area median income for a single person working is 60, what are we, $67,000 thereabouts, right? For a household, it's in the 90s. Um, so if you're making $67,000 annually, you are making the median income for the Huntsville Metro. Um, so when we talk about affordability, we're talking about sort of that happy range of housing, you know, your, your target rate range for that group is 80 to 120% of AMI. For most folks, you're looking at building housing in the $200,000 to $250,000 range. That is really, really hard to build right now. Um, shortages of labor, shortages of material, supply chain issues make it really hard to put organically affordable um, housing on the ground in that format. Yes. <laughs> Luxury apartments are easy to build because they're real easy to finance. Um, and I would say, too, you'll see signs that say luxury apartments. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be luxury apartments. So that we have been seeing a variety of, of apartment price points come out of the ground. The ones that tend to be lower tend to be smaller footprint. So you're seeing some folks who are building apartments that instead of being 1,800 square feet, they're 800 square feet. And they're pitching those kind of as affordable because they're smaller, but there's a, there's a, um, uh, a lower rental rate. Now, it's harder to build those because instead of having to only build one bathroom and one kitchen for 1,800 square feet, now you're building more bathrooms and more kitchens, you know, per your overall floor plate. And so that becomes, it becomes very difficult even to build multifamily or single family from an affordable standpoint without somebody participating. And then that somebody is generally a housing authority, it's, or it's the city, or it's a nonprofit like Neighborhood Concepts or um, uh, Habitat for Humanity or Lincoln Ministries. You know, those are the folks who can come in and start creating housing that becomes more affordable for the folks that the market is not reaching. Larry? On that whole note, there are things that the city can do from a policy point of view that make it easier to incremental development. You can now yeah. smaller than get many flats and flats and many people have no only Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I think, excuse me, a big thing is by right allowing what we would call by right zoning, where you can do multifamily on a pro on a piece of property without necessarily having to go through any sort of development hurdles, right? You don't have to go through any special approvals. You can build multifamily on, you know, a one acre parcel, right? Um, that is a, a huge opportunity because larger developers have no trouble dealing with, uh, you know, with an extensive permitting process 
smaller ones do. That's that that's a real capital outlay for them. You know, having to spend time to actually navigate bureaucracy. So cleaning up our zoning. I know zoning is not sexy to a lot of folks. It is not. It can be just mind numbing. I mean, even to me as a planner, it can be a little mind numbing. But it's incredibly important because your zoning is your vision, right? It says this is what we want to see built. This is what we'll allow by right. If we allow more and diverse housing on the ground by right, it makes it easier for anybody to build. Um, and we did promise to talk a little bit about homelessness. Um, at the end of the day, you're right, there is no substitute for supply in terms of helping keep folks out of homelessness situations. Um, we do have a few other folks who in the city who know more about this and are involved more in it uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Guys in our community development organization, um, if you ever see community resource offices with uh, officers with um, Huntsville Police Department, those folks know those camps intimately. They know most of those folks in there by their first and last name. They know their stories. Um, one of the biggest challenges is for a lot of them, I think access to housing would really help. For a lot of them, it can't just be housing. Um, and you are seeing that uh, not only in city initiatives, but also federal initiatives. Again, we talked about federal policy. Um, one of the, the big initiatives around housing has been what's called the Choice Neighborhoods Initiative. That is a program that comes down from HUD. And if any of you are familiar with the Mill Creek Project that's going on just, just west of downtown, that is a Choice Neighborhoods Initiative project. Now, HUD is encouraging housing authorities to redevelop their properties. Um, a, an organization like Huntsville Housing Authority, which does a really, really good job of maintaining those properties, is also shoveling against the tide because those buildings are in many cases 50, 60, 70 years old. They're functionally obsolete. They just, they were not built to last nearly as long as we've asked to last. Um, and it's, you know, frankly, not fair to put folks in that kind of substandard housing, but we're not giving them enough, we're not giving housing authorities enough money to, to functionally redevelop those. So the idea is to redevelop that housing with private partners, but it's not just about the housing. HUD recognizes that it's not enough to give you four walls and a roof. That's very important, but we also have to give you drop-in daycare. We have to give you skills training. We have to give your aftercare programs. We have to give your um, parents multi-generational housing, right? Um, you have to provide a range of services that go in to helping folks not only get housing, but stay into housing. And then the folks who have the wherewithal or the ability to matriculate out into more self-sufficient housing. And that is uh, the last component that I mentioned is it's not just about allowing the market to answer things, but it's also finding partners like the housing authority, like neighborhood concepts and private nonprofits that can help provide housing to folks who, who the market is quite frankly, just not supplying housing for. And um, so you have to do all of that. You have to allow the market to do a better job at providing diverse housing and a lot of housing. And then you also have to participate um, from a city and a housing authority side and a nonprofit side. And then the last bit about I would roll in again back to the transit piece is a lot of times a, a low to moderate income household, you know, someone making 30% of AMI as a household, um, oftentimes housing is the number one expense. The number two expense, especially in a region like ours, is transportation. If we can do a better job putting transit on the ground, well, now all of a sudden I'm making their transportation costs low. They've got a little bit more flexibility around housing because I'm making transportation more accessible for them. For a lot of other LMI households, um, the second largest, and this is 
this was shocking when I heard it because I didn't realize how much of that was happening here. Second largest um, household expense behind housing. Anyone want to guess? How many of y'all have kids? Childcare. There are households that are spending the second largest monthly outlay is childcare, and it's only getting worse. We are not backfilling with childcare. Um, we see a lot of small childcare shops closing up. That has a very, you know, uh, other than, you know, young, well, middle-aged professionals and young professionals like us, um, you know, we have the resources to go ahead and find ourselves childcare. We have the flexibility to access childcare when we need to. Law to low to moderate income house. Not have that flexibility, not have that kind of wherewithal if we can find ways to make child so all of a sudden we're giving those households um a little bit more resources and a little bit more flexibility to spend so um the big thing i just wanted to to um to communicate is how diverse and how complex that we understand the housing uh ecosystem is and how many different things we're trying to address to make sure that we can perpetuate some level of affordability within. Uh, is that plenty of talking? You're about to get up and bang a gong. I mean, I'm happy to take questions and, and, and everything after that. Thank you so much. It was amazing. Because of our setup, I think it'd be probably better to just kind of mix and mingle and talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, we're going to work on our audio situation. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. That was incredible. Uh, I just want to reiterate we cannot solve uh, any of these systemic problems without legalizing dense, affordable housing. So it's only legal to build in like 15% of Huntsville. Um, and then, as you said, we've got to streamline the permitting process. We need to make it cheap and easy for developers to build the kind of housing that normal Huntsvillians can afford. Um, and these transit and housing work together, right? If you have dense housing, it's easier to justify transit. If you have transit, um, it's easier for people to uh, afford housing. And so, ask a question. Yeah, of course. Is there any kind of um, advocacy that folks could be doing with the city uh, or the city council around the zoning and the? That's a great question random woman that I do not know. Um, the, yeah, I think it, in, a, in a small community like ours, and, and while we're 235,000 folks by current census estimates, we're still a relatively small community. Um, we only have five council members. Um, they are generally very accessible, and they are great levers to push. Um, if you email them, call them, show up at their town halls, and just say, I'd love it if you would allow for more housing to be to come out of the ground. I would love to see more apartments because I tell you right now what they're really hearing, folks, is there's just too many bloody apartments coming out. This is just, we're growing too fast and I don't know what you think. And then let those live out in the county. If they can hear from folks who say, look, this, I like having new neighbors. I appreciate this kind of density as long as it's done intelligently, right? Not slapping them up in the middle of a single family neighborhood, but on major quarters. And if they're mixed use, right, you're adding some commercial space to it as well if you're going out and building your park space as well to amenitize so that they, they're not kind of a sea of, of asphalt they will appreciate that because now they'll know all right i know this makes sense but i'm also hearing folks push back against it is anyone out there for it if they are let them 
yeah, super well stated. I think the problem with housing is that the costs of new housing are often concentrated. So the people who are going to be living near the new housing will show up and advocate against it. But the costs of not building housing are diffuse. And so it's really hard to get people motivated to show up to advocate for new housing. And so we're trying to advocate for why we need to advocate for new housing because it impacts everyone here and the people who don't have the resources to show up to things like this. Um, so anyway, thank you so much. Appreciate it.